0: God's plan is that parents be the primary people that are responsible for raising their kids, instructing their kids. And when we turn that responsibility over to the state, we have to understand that we are giving some power and control away that God has designed for us as parents to really be that primary voice. You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Christian parents need to have clarity about their job description. Um, There's a lot of outside voices right now trying to redefine our job description as parents. And so... I want to help you um, kind of think that through a little bit more this evening. This is really just continuing the conversation about authority and sphere sovereignty. Last time in the last stream, we talked about how it relates uh, the spheres that God has appointed us authority over as it pertains to the church and what is the proper relationship between the church and human governments? Tonight, I want to talk about the issue of children and families and um, kind of the sphere that God has appointed parents over when it comes to children. Because there is some confusing things happening in our culture right now. And I want to help you think more clearly according to a Christian worldview so there is a rise um and you might not know the technical name for this but i'm going to show you a little chart here that so this is a chart from a book called teaching for diversity and social justice it's called the matrix of oppression it's a very helpful chart to really understand the dynamics of what's happening in our culture And what I want you to see here on the left-hand side are the social identity categories, race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, class, ability, disability, religion, and age. And what I want you to see is the privileged social groups, which are white people, biological men, gender-conforming biological men and women, heterosexuals, rich, upper-class, temporarily abled-bodied people, Protestants and adults, and particularly in that adults category. And then I want you to move over two columns to the right and look at targeted social groups. This is the column that our culture is currently labeling as oppressed people, marginalized people. It is in this column of the targeted social groups, Asians, Blacks, Latinos, Native people, Biological women, transgender, genderqueer, intersex people, lesbians, gay men, working class people, poor people, poor people with disabilities, Jews, Muslims, and Hindus. And then really pay attention to this, this bottom um, uh, row here elders and young people. What I want you to understand is that there is a growing um, Phenomenon happening in our culture to reclassify children as an oppressed class. And who are their oppressors? It is the adults in their lives. So if you don't want to be an oppressive adult, you um, want to instead be an ally that lifts up um, this oppressive oppressed group of people, which is children. And this is called ageism or adultism. And so you may never have heard of this, but this is another aspect of the critical social theories. And hopefully at the Center for Biblical Unity, we can um, do a book group soon on this topic, because this has particular application to parents, but especially to people working in the public education sector. So, um, hopefully, um, this is just an overview. Now, when we talk about op- oppression, here's what I'm not talking about I'm not talking about actual oppression, I'm not talking about actual traumas, you know, things of a nature of um, children who have experienced genuine trauma as a result of physical or emotional neglect or divorce or um, mental illness or parents with mental illness, children affected by parents who are incarcerated or homelessness or domestic violence. These are true challenges for children that, you know, we um, as the adults in their life can help them navigate and work through their emotions and and all of that. That's not what I'm talking about though when I'm talking about children as an oppressed category a oppressed class of people. Rather our our society is wanting to reclassify just the the, the nature of childhood as being an oppressed group not based on things that they are going through okay not based on genuine traumas all right so that is why you are going to start seeing more and more pieces like uh this recent editorial this is not a news article i want to make that very clear this is an opinion this is an editorial that appeared in a local paper here in Southern California, in the the Ventura Star. Okay, I want to show you this. California should abolish parenthood in the name of equity. Again, this is not a news story. This is an opinion piece from the Ventura County Star. This is the newspaper, okay? And it has this clear disclaimer at the top. This piece expresses the views of its author. All right, so that's fine. People can have their views. Um, that's part of living in a free society. And even when uh, their, their views are, are um, out of step with, with my worldview, and that's okay. So if California is ever going to achieve true unity, the state must require parents to give away their children. Yes, this is what it's saying. Now, remember, this is in the name of equity. Equity is this great cultural value that, that, that our government and our public education is wanting to reorganize society according to the, the principles of anti-racism and equity. And so here's a suggestion from uh, Mr. Matthews here that if we're going to achieve true, true equity, which is the um, the the result that we're looking for is equal um, outcomes and equal monetary outcomes in particular um, across the board if we're going to achieve that true equity the state must require parents to give away their children today's californians often hold up equity the goal of a just society completely free from bias okay so how they're defining their terms is vital so they're actually offering a, a definition of equity and it is under the banner of justice. So if we're going to get to a just society, if this is the outcome that we're looking for, we need to have completely free from biased as our greatest value. Governor Gavin Newsom, who's the governor here in California, makes decisions through an equity lens. And this is true. And he's reprogramming our state through this lens. Institutions from dance ensembles to tech companies have publicly pledged themselves to equity. But their promise, their promises are no match for the power of parents. Here's his proposal for how we're going to re-engineer society. Fathers and mothers with greater wealth and education are more likely to transfer these advantages to their children, compounding privilege over generation. So this is the idea of multi-generational wealth. As a result, children of less advantaged parents face an uphill battle. Social mobility has stalled and democracy has been corrupted. More Californians are abandoning the dream. A recent policy, Public Policy Institute of California found declining belief in the notion that you can get ahead through hard work. Okay, well, we would have to look through those statistics and see what's behind all that. Here's his solution. Making raising your own children illegal. This is his his great proposal. It's simple. And while we wait for legislation to pass, we can act now. The rich and poor should trade kids. And homeowners might swap children with their homeless neighbors. Now, I recognize that some naysayers will dismiss such a policy as ghastly even totalitarian. But my proposal is quite modest, a fusion of traditional philosophy and today's most common political obsessions. So he's wanting to take equity to the next level. We're going to fix wealth inequalities by exchanging children. Wealthy people will give their children to homeless people and homeless people will give their children to wealthy people. And in a generation or two, if things will all even out, we should trade children. Are you ready for that? Okay. So this, this is this, this no, Laura, Laura says this must be satire. No, I think this guy's actually just playing equity out to its natural conclusion. I don't think it's actually satire. I think it's, it's real. Um, This is communist Marxist thought hiding behind the word equity. I don't disagree with you, Lincoln. I, I think you're right. But this is um, where things are heading. This, and, and so what I want you to understand is that equity is not just a pretty word that our our culture wants to use. There is an agenda behind equity. Now, it starts in the beginning. It sounds good. It's like racial equity. That kind of sounds like equality. That sounds like something I should get behind, okay? But that's not the end goal. This is just trying to um, baby step us to places like this. Now, I'm not saying that there's a law proposed on the books right now to go this direction. But it's these kind of editorials that can begin to grease those wheels a little bit and get this out in the public s- square and um, start to ha- enter into the competition of ideas. And so what we have to think about is, you know, all right, what is a Christian perspective of this? Because equity in a Christian worldview, equality under the law, not showing partiality, um, showing that justice is the same for the rich and the poor, the powerful and, and and the marginalized, that all are equal under the law in a courtroom, in other words. So that's a biblical idea. But here they're taking a, hijacking a biblical word, redefining it, and now there's a proposal, at least by this guy, of here's how we could play out equity all the way. So, first, there's this shell game of how we're going to redefine a, a term that's actually biblical and then redefine it to the point that we are engaging in profoundly unbiblical ideas. So, okay, Monique's watching. She says. I'm not technically a child, but I am someone's child. Any rich person want to adopt me, I'll volunteer as tribute. Thank you, Monique. All right. So yes, and uh, Lincoln is right. This is incrementalism and incremental, this is an incremental like, hey, let's introduce this really crazy idea. Everyone thinks gonna think it's crazy at first, but maybe it starts to start a public conversation and that's how these things happen. Okay. So, the second example I want to share with you along these lines, and then I'm going to tie it into the the Christian worldview, is this piece that I saw in, okay, this is an academic piece that is published on, um, you can go to this website, it's on the NIH.gov website. So this is a government entity, and this is from 2020, and it was published online. And the the headline or the title of this academic paper is Parental Licensing as Harm Reduction. And we'll just look briefly at the abstract here. In this paper, I will argue that some prominent objections to parental licensing, parental licensing, okay, Rely on dubious claims about the existence of a very stringent, if not indefeasible, right to parent. Okay, so this is a this is an article that is coming after the right of parenting, which would be violated by licensing. I claim that attaching such stringency stringency to the right only makes sense if we make a number of idealizing assumptions. Otherwise, it is deeply implausible. Instead, I argue that we should evaluate parental licensing policies in much the same way that we would harm reduction policies. By adopting this critical perspective, we can see that there are powerful but quite different reasons to be cautious about parental licensing relating to our ability to minimize harmful effects of mass parenting in a world of minimal surveillance and intervention. Now, if you go into the literature, there's actually quite a lot of papers um, and think pieces uh, related to parental licensing. I wasn't aware of this. And this is really starting to get into the whole question of the rights of a child and how do we think about those rights and how do we think about a parent's rights? So... Cassandra says, the UN Convention on the Rights of a Child has been something some people in our government have indicated they would like to adopt. It strips parents of their rights. And I think that this is an important thing to be aware of because the idea of children's rights, again, is a term and a phraseology that sounds sounds noble that sounds fairly innocuous. That sounds like something I should get behind. But we have to understand, all right, what are the implications of this from a Christian point of view? Uh, Monique says, this isn't a new idea. No, it's not. And, And I was surprised at how many academic think pieces there are about this issue. I remember having a discussion about licenses for parents when I was in social service 10 years ago. And I think that this is, a a difficult conversation because, again, w- going back to the the, the start of this, I, I said what I was not talking about is genuine traumatic experiences like domestic violence and physical harm and abuse. And and these are very real things that we have to um, think about. And But when we start talking about government interventions, in the family. We also have to understand and think about what the trade-offs are for how we are defining harm, okay? Because right now, because of the rise of children as an oppressed group, we are seeing more and more conversation that that children as an oppressed group need to be able to change their 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 sexual identification and even have irreversible surgeries at a very young age that they're allowed to do this and we are not allowed to intervene because that would be harmful parents are, in some cases in canada and there's been a couple of cases in america are losing custody of their children in the name of harm reduction, because they they want to intervene in their child's gender confusion. So when when harm reduction becomes conflated um, with abuse, this is where we start going down a very slippery slope. And I think that that is, where Christians need to show a little bit more discernment and to understand God's created order when it comes to parents. And so that kind of brings me back to the main point of this stream is that parents need to have clarity about their job description. And so I'm going to share just a few scriptures with us here of Understanding, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, what is our purpose? Why have we been created? Well, we've been created in the image of God. It says, so that humans may rule over the creation. We have been created to govern. This is our purpose. And we have been created in the image of God to do that. We also have a purpose to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This means that we are created to rule and to reign and to create families and to multiply and and fill the earth with those families. If we were to boil down the purpose of humanity all the way to its essence, that's what it would be. And so when we start having conversations about, who's in charge of our children, we have to understand that from God's created design, this is not talking about what Christians should do. This is God's created design for all of humanity. This is why we were created to, to rule and to reign, to to multiply and fill the earth. Now, I don't want to suggest that people who are single or couples who have no children are somehow inherently you know, deficient Or wicked, but you know, if we think about, um, you know, just at our most foundational level, that we are created with organs to to procreate. That is part of how God has created us. So we have to reflect on that, um, to 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 a deep degree, to to think about what does God have for me. Another scripture I want to share with you is from Deuteronomy chapter six. These are the commands, the decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing. This is right before God's people cross the Jordan River and go into to possess the land that God has promised them as a result of his covenant with Abraham. So that you and your children and their children after them, what is this purpose? They may fear the Lord. So now God's talking specifically to his covenant people. No longer are we talking to humanity more broadly. We're talking about God's design for covenant families and on the covenant that we live under, that would be for Christian families, that they may fear the Lord as long as you live by keeping all of his commands and decrees that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. Why does God tell us how to live according to the design that He has made for us, so that we can have long life, that we can have a good life? When we live according to our design, things generally go better for us. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may great, you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So they're not just commandments that are outside of us. They're not just going through the motions. They're designed to be written on our hearts. And In the New Covenant, we have the advantage of the Holy Spirit who writes them on our hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road. This is like when you're driving in your minivan, when you lie down, when you get up. In other words, all the time, you should be instructing your children. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, parents need to be teaching their children all the time about the faith. This is what we ought to do. Christians historically have called this catechizing our children, discipling our children. And so if we're going to think about our job description as parents, it's to teach our children their purpose, their dignity. They're created in the image of God. They're created to govern the earth. They're created to to multiply and fill the earth. That's their, that's their, their, um, their mission as God's special people, as his covenant people were told in Matthew 28, 19 to go into all the nations, preach the gospel and disciple the nations, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. This is what we are to be up to. And this is what then parents need to be teaching their children all the time. It should just be part of our way of life. And I love this verse that Paul says to Timothy. I love the picture of this. It says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now also lives in you. This multi-generational legacy that we are to pass on, uh, to our children, to our grandchildren. When I think about, there were some moments where I struggled as a parent, and I struggled to know what to do. And in those moments, I would ask myself, "How would I want my child to parent my grandchildren?" That's how I need to parent today, because I want to um, keep to, to pass on that legacy of our faith. So if we're thinking about who's in charge of our children taking it right back to who has God appointed to be sovereign who's in that sphere of sovereignty over our children it's parents that's who's in charge we want to be very careful and circumspect about giving the government permission for interventions and we've seen how this has played out in the last 2 years that you know, institutions that maybe we once thought we could really trust. Maybe we have less trust for those institutions now to truly have our children's best goals in mind for our children. Right now, we're living in an age where public schools, not all public schools, not all public school teachers, but many school districts have equity policies. And if you haven't yet, you should go on your local public school district website and read the equity policy for your, for your district. Many of these districts, in fact, I would tell you most, in fact, I would tell you, you should assume your district has this policy until you have documentation. Otherwise that a child is looked upon as being an, in an oppressed class and that that child Teachers and school officials will cooperate with that child to hide important information from the parents when they are in distress, when they are suffering from depression. Schools are increasingly giving um, surveys, it's really data collection, um, under the framework of social emotional learning that they are collecting data about your child's mental health but they don't have to disclose it to you as the parent. If your child starts using a different name or different pronouns at school or identifying a different way with a different gender, they do not have to notify you. M- most school district have these policies. It's usually in the equity part of the website, but you need to, to find out because things could be going on with your child that you don't even know about that they're in distress. God's plan is that parents be the primary people that are responsible for raising their kids, instructing their kids. And when we turn that responsibility over to the state, we have to understand that we are giving some power and control away that God has designed for us as parents to really be that primary voice. We need to get absolute clarity about our job description. As parents, and know what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what potential consequences could come when we share that authority with the state. We've seen, uh, I don't know if anyone's on Twitter, I don't recommend Twitter, it's kind of a wacky place. But there is quite a lot of conversation from public school administrators, districts, school boards saying that they kind of want to co parent with you. And they don't always think that you should have a say in what your children are learning. So, you know, we need to be engaged in these discussions. We need to know what's happening in the schools. Don't assume everything's okay. In fact, I would say, assume your school is giving your student um, these social emotional learning tests, surveys, feedback collection, data collection, assume that's happening until you have receipts that it's not happening. And assume that your school, public school district is going to hide information about you if your child is in distress until you see the policy about how they are going to involve parents. Um, that's the, the reality of where we're living. And so as our, the government and society wants to redefine our job descriptions, which is, I'm seeing this more and more. I want Christian parents to have biblical clarity about your job description. My school started calling parents caregivers. Words matter, friends. (laughs) If this is how your school district is talking about you, you need to understand that is an affront to your worldview as a Christian. Okay, so this is what I'm wanting you to know. I want you to think Christianly about every square inch of your life. All right, that's really what my ministry and and this channel is all about. So yeah, this is this is a mess. Um, it's unsettling that our new Christian school they always call they always say your student instead of your child. Yes, words matter. Yeah. And Laura, you're right. SEL is often cloaked as character development. So anyways, um, I just want to let you know uh, what's happening, how to think Christianly about these things. I look forward to your feedback. I hope you found this quick stream helpful. And um, I'm going to try to keep doing these periodic streams with just perspectives on the news and what I see happening. So if you're finding these helpful, let me know and I'll keep doing them. Uh, and I look forward to your feedback. Thank you so much. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.